And if you're here with me, uh, if you would turn to Genesis chapter 20. Uh, we're going to be there tonight as we continue through the life of Abraham. We're, we're nearly to the end of Abraham's life, or at least the stories that are told about him here. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, you can find our passage printed in the bulletin. Um, let me say a couple of words before I read it. Tonight's passage is best understood when you see what comes right before it and what comes right after it, uh, which is often the case in any book that you're reading, but especially in the Bible. Uh, stories aren't just placed in there at random, but there's a certain plot. And so if you remember back to last week, what happened in chapter 19? Sodom and Gomorrah. And the salvation of Lot, I mean, he was saved by the skin of his teeth, though. Uh, in fact, what didn't survive was Lot's marriage. Lot's wife looked back and hesitated, and so she was destroyed along with Sodom. And then his daughters uh, defiled not only themselves, but their father as well, after they had come out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Lot and his wife and their marriage and family begin to deteriorate very rapidly. Well, that's what comes right before this chapter. Right after it, you'll see in chapter 21, finally, Isaac is born. Finally. This is what God has been telling Abraham since chapter 12. Finally, years later. I mean, we're talking about almost a couple of decades after. Finally, the promised child is born. And so right in the middle is this story about how God preserves Abraham's marriage. So important. God preserves his marriage and in the process teaches him how to honor marriage as a part of his, God's unfolding plan in history and in time. And I think there's a lot of lessons for us too in honoring our own marriages and thinking about how God might be using them for his purposes, okay? Preceded by a story about a bad marriage, ended by a story about God intervening in a marriage, here's this story about preservation of marriage. All right, let me read to you. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. I think we've heard this before, right? <laughs> and, uh, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you. From sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for, she, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, 
the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and so she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must show me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before for you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign before everyone that you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Okay. Well, if you look at your bulletin, there are three sections to this story that we're going to talk about, and each one's going to help us see how and why we should honor marriage, just like God was teaching Abraham. First of all, there's another foolish decision in verses 1 to 2, another foolish decision that Abraham makes, which causes great risk to his, his own personal marriage. Then secondly, in verses 3 to 7, there is an intervention of God to preserve Abraham and his marriage so that the promise could come to them. And then lastly, there is a lesson in verses 8 to 18 in honor, a lesson in honor about God really showing Abraham how to do better with his marriage than he did at this scene, okay? Let's look first of all at the foolish decision, just verses 1 and 2. We don't have to say too much about it because we've seen it before. Abraham does what he did back in Egypt. He goes into this foreign place and tells Sarah to lie about their relationship. Uh, say you are my sister, he says, so then they won't kill me in order to get you. Uh, did that go well in Egypt when they tried that? <laughs> How was that? Not good. It wasn't good for Abraham. It wasn't good for Sarah, who in fact did get picked up into Pharaoh's harem for a short time before God could once again intervene. And it was really bad for Egypt. Remember God came and brought plagues? to Pharaoh and his family because of what had happened? Uh, well, Abraham tries it again. In fact, he even admits, you know, this is kind of what we do everywhere we go. And once again, we kind of can relate to Abraham in this. Um, Abraham is justifiably afraid. When he went to Egypt, he knew who the Egyptians were, and so he lied then, and now he's in Canaan, um, and this is the land he lives in, but he doesn't own a single plot of land in the whole country. I mean, remember, he's a sojourner, which means Abraham's a tent dweller, just wandering around like a gypsy from place to place. And so he never really knows whether he's in the territory of a friend or of a foe. He's always feeling like he's a hunted, watched man. And so you can kind of understand why he would continue this same, you know, shtick of uh, telling his wife to lie, and he would lie that way, at least if they stole his wife, they would spare his life. However, we got to understand something here. Abraham is once again acting understandably, but acting in a very disrespectful way towards his marriage. Okay? It is totally understandable that Abraham would want to save his skin. But he's trying to save his skin at the possible risk of his spouse and her honor and her purity and chastity as well as his own family to come. Wow. 
uh, when, a, when a boat is about to, like a, a ship is about to wreck or a ship is in a storm, sometimes one of the things they'll do is they'll unload some of the cargo, right? Have you ever seen that on movies? Unload the cargo over the, overboard so that the ship is lighter, can travel through the storm better. But usually, what kind of cargo do they pick to throw over? The stuff they really need or the stuff they need less? Less. It's very simple, right? Uh, you want to try to keep at least the things you need the most. If you're throwing everything over, that shows just how desperate you are. Um, I think it's interesting that Abraham still continues to basically throw Sarah overboard. Very fascinating. Um, I don't know whether that's a reflection of maybe a particular sin of the time when, um, you know, it just maybe was part of that very extremely patriarchal culture where um, maybe the wives were seen as basically expendable. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it. But at any rate, Abraham hadn't quite learned just how valuable Sarah is yet, apparently, because he's willing to basically give her up in order to save himself. Uh, God is going to intervene, and he's going to teach Abraham how to value Sarah better. Right? That's going to be the main thing in this whole story. But it's important for us to stop there. It's easy to, to think about Abraham and think, man, what a, what a jerk, you know? Giving up his spouse again? First it was Pharaoh, now it's Abimelech. I mean, what in the world? Uh, we're going to read uh, in, I think it's chapter 26 or so, his son Isaac does the same thing. Two, by the way. Uh, he kind of maybe learned something from his father. Um, actually, he's going to do the same thing to the same king, Abimelech. Um, and Abimelech doesn't pick up on it, you know. Maybe there's enough time in between, you know, that Abimelech had forgotten about the whole strategy. And so he falls for it again when Isaac does it. Uh, and so we've got to stop here and think, how do we do this, okay? And, and follow me here. I don't think anybody in here would actually give their spouse up, like, to be killed or mistreated to save themselves. However, I do think we are all in danger of putting our marriages at risk for, in various ways because we're afraid of something. Abraham was more scared of death than he was afraid of God or, or that he feared God. And let me tell you, anytime you're afraid of anything besides the Lord your God, watch your heart. And watch how that is affecting your marriage and your family. Before it gets too bad, start watching it. Because where there's smoke, there's fire. Where there's fear, there will, be very, there will often be sinful decisions in the wake. Maybe not like this one. Okay, we have much more modern strategies here, but think about some of the ways we put our marriages at risk today and think about where that comes from. So what are some of the ways that we might put our marriages at risk today, the modern day? Work too much. Work too much. All right, great. So being absent from one another, too busy with career to spend time. Bad relationships, yep, so just not treating each other well, uh, with respect. What else? I would say putting 
Yeah, it could be that. Yeah, putting putting children before spouse sometimes that that can happen for sure. Keep thinking. Those are great. What's that? Other relationships. Yeah, we got to say that one, right? Other relationships can certainly come in between. Um, what do you think are the top two reasons why people get divorced? Money. money. Yep. Infidelity. Infidelity. Sex and money. And so uh, there are many ways, that, whether it's financial mismanagement or neglect of companionship, as, as Mickey mentioned. Uh, lying to one another, uh, using our words in a harsh manner to each other, lust that we may be harboring towards another. Um, All of these things are ways that we put our marriages at risk. And oftentimes, if you'll watch that, you'll notice that underneath it is some kind of fear that we're not submitting to the fear of the Lord. That's usually always the case. Um, When you fear the Lord, it drives out other fear. And it gives you courage to obey God even when it seems risky. But when you fear something else more than the Lord, you'll disobey God to mitigate the risk every single time. Um, and these, other, these things, financial mismanagement, you know, speaking to one another harshly, these things may seem very small and almost insignificant. They may actually seem to be completely unrelated to marriage itself. Yet, I think all of us would agree once those things start in a marriage, uh, they can very much undermine it, you know, quickly. Don't you, don't you see? I mean, uh, just like Abraham. I mean, Abraham was literally risking his entire marriage. He, he could have lost Sarah forever. Abimelech could have married her, could have violated her and taken her to be his wife. What a risk. And he did it all because he was afraid of a king and his power to kill him. Even though God had been given Abraham for over 14 years the promise that he was going to be the father of many nations, including kings. Who is Abraham afraid of? Abimelech more than God. And so he risks matrimony. He, he, he risks this beautiful thing that God has given him, this marriage with this woman. And I want to tell you, marriage is, an, is honorable because it's God's gift. Let me put it more specifically. Your spouse is God's gift to you. Right? Not just marriage in general. Okay, mar- you know, not just the idea of marriage, but your particular spouse is God's gift to you. Right? And you, actually, are God's gift to your spouse. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Many of us got the better deal, right? Many of us definitely got the better deal in that equation. But this is, this is God's gifting. And God's gifts deserve to be honored because when God gives a gift, he gives it in order to achieve certain goals of his own. Always. And marriage has tremendous goals in God's mind and heart. Okay, you, you can't even, I don't think I can even overstate, well, obviously we can't overstate how much marriage is the means by which God carries out nearly everything he does. Just the obvious, would there be anyone on this planet besides Adam and Eve if there had not been marriage? 
Would you be here? No, none of us, right? I mean, think about it. How many people come to know Christ because their parents married, had a child, and followed Jesus and encouraged them to follow Jesus? I mean, most of us could have that. Not every Christian has that testimony, but many do. Wow. Um, I read this week that this is why what we do with our body matters. God doesn't see it as something separate from our spiritual life. You can't separate the two. You can't say, spiritually I'm God's, but with my body I'm my own. Because most of what God gets done in the world is done through human bodies. It matters. I mean, this is why God said, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. You belong to me, therefore honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. I mean, that's the logic of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he's talking about apparently there were some Christians in the church at Corinth who thought, well, I'll go to church, but it's okay if kind of through the week I visit the prostitutes here and there, right? It's okay, right? Everybody's doing it in Corinth. And Paul says, no, if you've been joined to Christ because he bought you and you belong to him, when you take your body and join it to a prostitute's body, it's like you're taking Christ and joining Christ to a prostitute. Would Christ do that? No. So therefore, you don't do that. You see, this is a a very pervasive Bible theme. Sexuality is not like a a side issue in human life that God cares a little about while caring a lot about the other things. Sexuality is one of the things God cares about, big things that God cares about. One of the reasons why Jesus came to die was to redeem us in our marriage relationships. Abraham's having to learn this the hard way through an experience where he puts his marriage at risk. And, and I, I just want us to think, and you know, it's not something you've got to answer out loud tonight, but just think in your heart, where are you putting your marriage at risk? What are those fears that might be driving you to put your marriage at risk? Um, it's always good to notice those things when they're small until they become very large things. When they become large problems, they're very hard to tangle with. When they're small problems, they're a lot easier to tangle with. All right. Abraham, you know, doesn't follow that advice though here. So secondly, God has to intervene. This shows you the grace of God. Okay, so Abraham was willing to throw Sarah overboard. <laughs> His life was going into a storm and Abraham said, you know what, Sarah, pew, you're gone so that I can have my life saved. That was very weak and cowardly. Notice how God acts when Sarah is under uh, threat. Notice how God treats Sarah versus how Abraham treats Sarah. This is cool. Verse, verse 3, what does God do in defense of Sarah? He shows up in the king's dream and says, you are a dead man. I love that. Right? I love that. God, God is a defender of those who are in trouble, who can't defend themselves, always throughout Scripture. Uh, we should always bear that in mind. God is a defender of those who cannot defend themselves throughout Scripture. Sarah is in a very weak and vulnerable position, especially in this culture. Um, she's been, I mean, you notice how it happened. I mean, the, the king is just able to come in and take her. I'm glad that is not the way our society is set up. This society was set up that way. 
And this vulnerable person who had no say in the matter, yet God showed up in this man's dreams and says, you're dead. Because the woman you just took, she belongs to somebody else, and he happens to be my prophet. You know, Yeah, he didn't do right, and he threw her overboard, but I'm not going to throw her overboard. I'm here to confront you. You best not touch her. You best give her back, and then you best beg Abraham to pray for you so I'll save your life. That's some kind of dream. You know? I love the fact, and I, th- I believe this still happens. God um, shows up in the dreams of kings and presidents. He does. Uh, Proverbs says, God holds the heart of the king in his hands and he turns it wherever he wills like a water course. Meaning, it's almost like a, we might say today, the heart of the king is, the, is a water hose in God's hand. He points it wherever he wants. That's comforting to me because sometimes it can feel like kings and powerful people just get whatever they want whenever they want and they just run over people. And, and, and sometimes they do to all appearances. Don't worry, God's, God's there. They may be ignoring God, but God's showing up. God is showing up. Um, I like, do you like that? That we have a God like that? Uh, and this is above and beyond all the political processes. Um, you know, this is way above and beyond the level of voting and politicking and wars and coups and way above, way higher above all that stuff is God coming in and out wherever he wills into every heart, confronting people for evil, turning them towards good. Uh, the, the real irony here is Abraham says to Abimelech later, the reason I did this is I knew there was no fear of God here. When the reality is in this story, it's Abraham that doesn't fear God and Abimelech comes to fear God. Do you see? And sometimes this is the, among the greatest lessons we could possibly learn as Christians are when we get outplayed by the rookie. You know? When Christians get out-loved by the non-Christian. Those can sometimes be the most humbling circumstances. Uh, when a non-Christian out-protects the vulnerable over us. Whew, that hurts. But it humbles us in such a way that I think it turns our hearts, just like it does Abimelech. I mean, God is turning Abimelech's heart, but he's also by that trying to turn Abraham's heart to show Abraham what it is he needs to do. God defends Sarah's honor. And I love this because God also faithfully preserves the marriages of his people too today. This is something we all ought to be thankful for. There are many times where we put our marriages at risk And behind the scenes, God is delivering us from trouble. Do you believe that? We act recklessly, and we don't even maybe know we're acting recklessly. We're just acting out of fear and pride and unbelief, and we're doing all this, making a mess. And in ways we don't even know, God is preserving. God is keeping. I mean, God is able here to keep a pagan king from committing sexual immorality with a woman he just took as his own. Now, there's a lot of miracles in Scripture recorded. That might be one of the biggest ones that I've ever seen, right? Don't you agree? That might be the biggest miracle. He he didn't even touch her, it says, because he was so afraid of what he saw and heard 
in that dream that God showed up and confronted him with. Wow. Now, I don't even know how to count the different times God has shown up to deliver me from things that I ought to have fallen into because by definition, I don't know because they're behind the scenes. But the ones that I do know that, I've, that God has shown me after the fact makes me realize there's a whole lot more of them in there where God was delivering me and I didn't even know it, didn't even realize it. Wow. That's part of the story, isn't it? Part of the story. But part of the way you get to heaven is through the things God does for you you don't even know. Right? Um, we talk all, all the time about how you gotta kind of you got to really go all in for God and follow him, and that's so true. I mean, you, you can't get to heaven without effort that's spirit-inspired, absolutely. He works in you, and he wants you to walk with him. I, I don't want to diminish that at all. But sometimes we take greater steps towards heaven when we're flat on our back, and God's doing all this work behind the scenes to preserve us and protect us and you know, preserve and protect our relationships and all that. And so, you know, if God had let Abimelech do this, what Abraham gave Sarah over for him to do, Sarah would have been lost to him forever. And the promise that God made in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 would have been done. Because the birth of Isaac depended upon that child being born of Abraham and Sarah in particular. Let me say it even more starkly. Had this not been, had they not been saved from this, Jesus Christ would not have been born in this world. Who is a descendant of Abraham and Sarah. Wow. And so God always has plans for us as Christians, and He always has plans for our relationships, especially our marriages and families. And we ought to every day give thanks for all the unknown blessings and all the many unmerited blessings where we put ourselves at risk and yet God was there to protect us from the worst case scenario. Right? Do you ever do that? Do you ever say, God, thank you for the stuff you did for me today that I don't even know you did? You should try that. It's pretty cool. Now, lastly, God turns to give Abraham a um, lesson in honor. I said a moment ago that some of the most humbling things that can happen is when we're outplayed by the rookie. When the person that doesn't even know God kind of runs circles around us in doing what God commands. And that does happen. And God lets it happen to show us where we're falling short and to humble us so that we will plead for his grace. And so in verses 8 through 18, Abimelech and Abraham have this meeting. Can you imagine, by the way, being... Abraham called in by the king Abimelech. You're probably already feeling terrible for what you did, ashamed of yourself. Um, we could imagine, given Abraham's history, that he's probably already thinking God has, maybe God has abandoned me because of what I just did. And then here comes the call from Abimelech. Come to my court. Let's have a chat. What's Abraham feeling? More fear. What else? What lie am I going to tell next? 
to keep this thing up. I got to think of, you know, once you lie once, you got to figure out how to lie twice and three times and four times. You know what I mean? He's, he's got all this going through his mind. How am I going to keep this ruse up? Because now he's bringing me in and I may even see Sarah there and that's going to be awkward and what's going to happen? And when uh, this meeting happens, uh, God has the sense of humor to have Abimelech lecture Abraham about the honor of marriage. Isn't that cool? Look at what it says. Verse 9. What have you done, Abraham? What have you done? How have I sinned against you that you brought such a great sin on my kingdom, on this kingdom? The pagan understands how bad the sin is Abraham committed, while Abraham himself doesn't. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. You haven't treated me the way you would want to be treated. Abimelech said, what did you see that you did? That? What made you think this is what you had to do? I mean, it, can you kind of see how the Holy Spirit is speaking through the pagan king? Mm. I mean, you know, Abimelech wasn't a great guy. What we know from some of the other stories, this was not a tremendous man, but... God is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And here the line is as straight as an arrow. Abraham, you've sinned, a great sin. You've brought a sin not only on yourself, but on Sarah and everybody else. You treated someone the way you would not want to be treated. And you acted out of fear of man rather than fear of God. And so verse 10, what did you see that you did this thing? Verse 11, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God before in all this place. And they'll kill me because of my wife. And then he comes up with this lame, you know, family tree thing where, well, he, she really is my sister, kind of, you know, but, you know, from another mother and we got married. And we'll leave that to the side for a minute because that's, it is weird. But in some way, Abraham's still trying to soften what he did. But Abimelech exposes it. Or we should say rather the Holy Spirit exposes it through Abimelech. Abraham, what you really did is while you thought everybody else didn't fear God but you did, it was you who was not fearing God at all. You were fearing death more than God. You were fearing a human more than you feared the Lord God who reigns over all humans. And therefore you brought a great sin upon yourself and upon this other nation. Now, how do you think Abraham feels? Real lousy. <laughs> Woo, real lousy. What else? Afraid. Yeah. Woo. Out of the frying pan into the fryer. Embarrassed. Embarrassed. I know that's how I would feel shame. I don't know about you. Man. Abraham, the friend of God. Hmm. And it's true of all of us, friends of God. You know, we sometimes act like God's enemies. And Abraham did. Man, it got exposed by this man who wasn't supposed to know at all. Man, the shame, the fear, the lousy feeling of regret. And yet, in verses 14 to 18... Abraham and Abimelech together walk in this direction of repentance. It's a beautiful thing that you see. 
Abraham and Abimelech together repent. Abimelech gives Abraham payment. Not only that, but he restores Sarah first, and then he gives this large gift to Abraham, and then a large gift, probably even larger gift to Sarah. He gives 1,000 pieces of silver in Sarah's name. And you might read that and think, well, what does that do? Uh, Basically, this is just like a public way of saying, you did no wrong, the wrong was with me, I'm the sinner. Let the whole world know Sarah is innocent. Let the whole world know Sarah didn't do anything to break her marriage vow. It was Abraham's fault and it was Abimelech's fault. That's beautiful. Uh, When you wrong someone, there always needs to be some type of you know, I use the word reparation, okay? You know, I know that word's a loaded word, but that's what this is, right? It's a reparation. It's a way of trying to make right what has been done so wrongly, what has been mistreated. And we know this. A lot of times in our own marriages when we break trust, which we all do in different ways from time to time, uh, what has to happen is, is not just simply an apology because apologies don't rebuild trust, Forgiveness and trust are two separate things. You can forgive someone, but still not trust them. Because forgiveness is a gift given, trust is a thing earned, always. And the only way you can earn trust is over time, by repairing, literally reparation, repairing what has been broken. And Abimelech and Abraham begin that process right here. In the next story, we're going to see Abraham do something very heroic for his wife that shows he's continuing to build trust, to rebuild what had been lost by what he did. But we'll get to that next week. But the process has started. And not only is there reparation, but there's also prayer. I mean, Abraham prays, verse 17, to God, and God healed Abimelech because apparently in all of this, God had uh, cursed Abimelech and his wife and his, um, you know, his slaves. Um, that all of their wombs were closed because of what he did. I mean, he, he just shut it down. And then because Abraham prayed and because they, they got together and repented publicly of what had, done, had happened, God reopened the womb. Now, now what, what do you think the reason for that is? Why would God close the wombs and why would he reopen them as a part of this repentance process? Right, yeah, that's right. Probably wasn't, yeah. It could be months, yeah. I think so. It could be months. It, it had to be enough months to tell the wombs were closed, right? <laughs> to be able to tell that many people's wombs had been closed, you'd have to have some time to have that play out. Yeah. That's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's a great reason. Any other reasons why you think that particular thing is mentioned at the end there? Yeah. It, sin doesn't just affect you, it affects others around you. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, especially when it comes to marriage. Okay. This is there's a lot of sins in the world, but tonight we're talking about marriage, these sins. Um, those sins affect not just you, but especially they affect they affect generations down the line. Um, and that's a sobering that's a really sobering thing for all of us. I mean None of us can think about that and not feel a little bit of 
inadequacy, at the very least. At most, great guilt and sadness, but at the least, and all of us feel inadequate to that. And we are all inadequate to that. But the reality is, when God designed marriage, he designed it to be the way in which he gathers his people generationally. You know, we, we believe that God is gracious and faithful to his people, not simply as individuals, but as families. In successive generations. And so, marriage is a key linchpin in that. Uh, when the marriage covenant, and the, as the Bible says, when marriage is not held in honor, when the marriage bed is defiled, as it says in Hebrews 13, the whole generational plan of God becomes, comes into jeopardy. Um, we might not take it that seriously. I know we don't in our culture take it that seriously at all. We think, well, this is just something we do with our bodies. It's not a big deal. We just, you know, it's very casual. There's ways of making sure the consequences don't become too big because we have all these modern medical advances. We can keep it contained. From the beginning of the Bible, God says, this is not something you can keep contained because of how much power I've invested in marriage. How, I've invested so much power in marriage. When marriage is tampered with, it destroys more than we can imagine. Um, think about Lot. Remember the story that went right before this? A marriage that fell apart. Look at what happened. I mean, gross. I'm not saying that happens every single time a marriage falls apart. Certainly not. God is gracious and preserves a lot of things from happening that could happen. But that at least shows you what is capable of happening when people don't honor marriage. And their spouse in particular whom God has given them. God's design for marriage is absolutely massive to the human race. It's not an exaggeration, I don't think. And it's not just Christian moralizing to say that the family is the basic building block of society and that marriage is the basic building block of the family. I don't think that's just a you know, moral high-horsing. Remember I just said we all are inadequate. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But nevertheless, the truth is the truth that God has staked a whole lot on man and wife. And so the Bible says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Hebrews chapter 13. God will hold people accountable for this. He will show up in your dreams. He'll haunt them, right? He'll, he'll seek to bring you to repentance. And thankfully he does. Thankfully he preserves us even when, like I said before, even when we're not aware of what we're doing, he preserves us, right? But for every Christian, when we read this story, just like Abraham, Abraham is having this encounter with Abimelech, which is really an encounter with the Holy Ghost. And Abraham is having to learn, all right, here's how I need to now, from now on honor my marriage. God really takes this seriously. I didn't defend my wife, but God did. Woo. I, better get, I better get on the ball and start defending her because I want to be on God's team here. And he's on Team Sarah right now. <laughs> you see? And vice versa for Sarah. Sarah you know, learned that about Abraham, too, in another story that we already read. And so we got to learn that. As Christians, we got to learn that our spouses are gifts to us. And that our, a huge part of our discipleship to Jesus is learning how to be faithful and loving and gracious in our marriages. As man and as woman. There are different duties for man and woman in that. Some of them are the same. Some of them are different. Nevertheless, we all have duties to fulfill that God has given to us. And it's, it's a huge part of our following Jesus to learn to do that day by day. Day by day. 
uh, all the li- I mean, uh, remember Song of Solomon? You might not remember. There's a line in there that says, the little foxes spoil the vineyard. Um, you know, and, and what does that mean? That means this is the, the man who's falling in love with the girl saying, hey, we got to be careful because the little problems in a marriage can tank the whole marriage. And so part of what we do as Christians is we learn how to watch our hearts when we're afraid. We watch our hearts when we're proud and arrogant. We watch our hearts when we feel like we've achieved a lot. Those are the moments we are very, very vulnerable to the various temptations that enter into the marriage relationship. Uh, When we feel like we're hot shots and we've done all this great stuff, we start to get cocky and we lose watchfulness over our eyes. We start to lose watchfulness over our thoughts. We let all kinds of um, materialism infect our hearts, which leads to sensuality, which leads to... All kinds, all many different things. Uh, when we're afraid, a lot of times it's very easy to, to work out our fears in ways that are hurtful to the people closest to us. Uh, we may learn how to hide our fear from everybody else, but we take it out on our spouse at home. And all that kind of stuff, we got to watch because that kind of stuff can be a breach of our relationship, not only with our spouse, but with God. Because God is looking for something from our marriages. In Abraham and Sarah's marriage, he was looking for something real special to his heart. What was he looking for? His son. He wasn't going to let that, he was not going to let that get torpedoed by Abraham's foolishness. Not in a million years. Well, you know, obviously. Jesus Christ is not going to come from our family lines, but God is still, he's looking for children for Jesus Christ. He's looking for members of the body of Christ out of our family line. This is why, I mean, think about it. Have you, have you never been surprised? by how often in the New Testament letters, after Paul says all this beautiful stuff about the gospel, the first thing he says is, husbands, love your wives. Wives, love and respect your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, deal with your kids in a respectful, understanding way. Don't be harsh with them. Have you ever ever thought, that's kind of weird. You know, he's talking about all this theology, and then boom, just love your wife. That's, that's, I mean, that's because that's what the theology is for. <laughs> the theology is for living so that God can achieve the purposes of his glory in real life, in the world, in this world that he made. Wow. Now, uh, if you've ever uh, wondered, okay, how can I keep a good watch over my marriage? How can I honor my marriage? Let me just give you one recommendation. There are many recommendations I could give you, but... Um, let me give you this one, and it, and it might seem like a pedestrian one uh, and kind of predictable, but, but I'll send you to the Westminster Larger Catechism, questions 138 and 139 on the Seventh Commandment, okay? Uh, you say, oh, wow, that's, that's lame, Stan. Really? The Westminster Catechism? That's where you're going to send me? Yes, because, listen, I don't think it's all that lame. If you go read it, and maybe you should get a modern version of it because there's some words in there that are maybe harder for us to understand, but it's going through the seventh commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery. And it, 
it's about way more than sex, as you'll see when you go read it, as that commandment is way more than about sex. He goes through and tells you all the things you need to do to protect you and your spouses and your neighbor's purity and chastity towards God. And then it tells you things you ought to completely avoid in order to protect your marriage. And I think the lists are, I mean, they were written in 1647, but I don't know that you could write a better list. I mean, I mean humans are humans, right? We've always done the same stuff. And um, go read that. You can access it online anywhere. It's actually, there's a link on our website to it. It's questions 138, 139. Uh, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment and what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? And it'll give you some food for thought. Uh, let me give you a sample. You should be watchful over your eyes and senses. You should be temperate in your use of drink and food and the company that you keep. You should be modest in your apparel. You should be diligent in your work. Now, you would think, I mean, what in the world does that have to do with marriage? But remember David. David took a year off to chill. And that was when Bathsheba thing happened because he was just kind of chilling. And, um, you know, you, you take that and make of that what you will, but uh, God calls us to be busy for a reason, right? He calls us to do work for him for a reason. And then, and then in things that are forbidden, um, you know, how about this one? <clears throat> Gluttony, drunkenness, um, lascivious songs, books, pictures. Uh, back then they said dancings and stage plays, although, you know, we're probably not dealing with that today, but so much. But I think you can hear that and hear where we do deal very much with those things. It may be even in a more profound way than people ever did, right? Um, again, I don't think this is just Christian moralizing. I don't think this is just fundamentalism. I think this is true just faithfulness to the honor of what marriage means. And if you don't guard your heart, then what, else, what are you doing, right? I mean, the heart is what everything comes out of. You only have one heart. I only have one heart. Guard it. You only have one spouse at a time, right? You, you may have been remarried, and, and, but you have one spouse at a time. Guard it. Guard your spouse. Guard your marriage. Guard her. Guard him with all your heart. Amen?